And welcome to Catholics Coast to Coast, where we like to really jump into a deeper conversation of what we can do to help in our walk with God and to build community together. Podcast Central helping to rally us all together each and every week. So check us out at Podcast Central when you go to EWTN.com slash radio. I'm Ace McKay, welcoming our newest member to the Podcast Central family, which is Catholic Feedback. It's a new podcast exploring faith, life, and culture, hosted by former Protestant pastor and Catholic convert Keith Nestor. And this week, Keith has questions concerning spiritual warfare. So he's invited exorcist Father Carlos Martins to help with that discussion. And we're going to dive right in. This is Catholic Feedback on this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. Dr. Ben Reinhardt, lovely to have you on the show. It's great to be here. When were you first introduced to Tolkien? I was probably about seventh grade. You know, I was just sort of looking around for things to read. Uh, I found that my dad had a copy of The Hobbit, so I started there. Yeah. And then sort of rolled on from that point on. So, yeah. Awesome. I think I, I first watched, I first read The Lord of the Rings. I'm ashamed to say, maybe. No, I'm not really ashamed to say. I wish it was sooner is what I'm trying to say. It was about, I don't know, eight years ago. Okay. Um, I got a bit kind of bogged down in the third book return of the king and so list like was listening to the audiobook mm. and, but then two years ago i read it with mike welker oh very nice who's a yeah. professor here on campus mm. for those who don't know and we we came up with a reading plan and we we read one book a month mm-hmm. and i say that whenever i read the lord of the rings i'm convinced it's the best book ever written and then whenever i read the brothers karamazov i'm like no this is the best book ever written and then i just go back and forth that's an acceptable opinion, I think. So, so what was it like? I, I'm, I know I'm not interviewing you, but what's it like to come to Tolkien as an adult? Because mm-hmm. sort of the standard stereotype, right, is this is something that homeschool kids read, homeschool kids read, or or you know, geeks in middle school or high school, and yeah. then they become overly enthusiastic young people. But you approached yeah. it in your 30s, right? Yeah. What was it like? Um, I, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis. His little quote about the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. It's often on the back covers. Yeah. They say something like, "Here are." What does he say? Beauties that pierce like swords or burn like cold iron. That's what it was like. Yeah. So my, my one my one kind of, the thing that struck me most is I, I was reading The Lord of the Rings and I was doing it to my ki- for, with my kids. And so mm-hmm. um, that was my excuse. And at the very end, you know, where um, Frodo was standing, oh, no, no, Frodo's gone off to see the elves and you've got Sam on the shores and it says it's sunk deep into his heart and mm-hmm. then he makes his way home. And he, he's in, he was expected, all mm-hmm. of these lines. Yeah. They just came up and up. As soon as I finished, I walked into my bedroom, walked into our walk-in closet, shut the door, and wept. It was so powerful. And I think I've said a few times, like, please read this over my grave when I'm dead. Like, it was the most beautiful, moving. Yeah, so it was just, it was wonderful. I think the first time I read it, I didn't like... Um, Who's the fella who nobody likes, who wasn't in the... That's not true. Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Yeah. Second time I read I loved him. Okay. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I don't know. That's Did not you really say good. nobody likes Tom well, you Bombadil? Know, he, he's the controversial he's one, He's the right? controversial one. He, he, he gets one, cut but... from the movies and people... There are divided opinions. Everyone loves most everything else, but there is the... Yeah. He's the controversial one, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I guess it was it. And it was just... Uh, you just like when you're reading... When you're reading about the Shire... Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but it, it seems to me that it's probably true that everyone has a moment where things were safe. Mm-hmm. And it's usually in our memory. Yeah. Um, I, I find this kind of nostalgia when I go to nice antique stores and mm-hmm. I see things of yesteryear and I just have this like, ah, 
There was yeah. a time things were good, even mm -hmm. if that wasn't true. Objectively, there was a time it felt right. Yeah. And yeah. So, so no, everyone's got that moment, right? Because the Shire has this sort of childlike feel to it, right? It takes you back to that time where the world was idyllic, yeah. where you were safe, tucked in your bed, yes. and you weren't exposed to all that other, all the other stuff that we yes. worry about all the time now, right? With wife and kids and mortgages and everything else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Uh, is it your favorite book? Ooh, boy. Favorite's very, very big, uh, yeah, big question. Yeah, you're right. So, it's an unfair favorite question. work of modern fiction, undoubtedly, right? Mm. Um, if we start putting it up against the whole literary tradition, it gets a little bit dicier. So there are some medieval works that I like very nearly as much or maybe more. Um, there are classical works that I like very nearly as much or, or maybe more. But for things written imaginatively in the past 500 years, it's absolutely my favorite. Yeah. What are some things people don't know about Tolkien? Things that people don't know about Tolkien. All right. So viewers of your channel are going to know about the Catholicism thing, right? So this is something that gets pushed out to the corners of pop cultural imagination, but Pints with Aquinas viewers will know, devout Catholic, daily mass goer for almost his entire life, things like that. But that's the biggest thing that's probably cut out of the popular image of Tolkien. Um, other things about Tolkien that people don't know, maybe even Catholics don't know, are sort of what a family man he was, right? So he lived very much for his family. He was an orphan. So he mm. worked massively, massively hard to provide his children with the sort of life that he himself couldn't have. So he took on extra work. He, you know, labored all these hours to, uh, to make sure his kids could have prosperity, success, comfort, right, in their childhoods that he never knew in his own, because of course he doesn't get rich from Lord of the Rings until the last decade or so of his life, right? So all that work, um, also with the family man angle, most of the drafting of Lord of the Rings was done after his kids and wife were in bed because his ordinary duties kept him busy through the day. He was with family during meals, he took his kids into bed, and most of that drafting would happen late at night, all, you know, all alone and up. So those are, cool little tidbits about Tolkien that yeah. people might not know. Massive pipe smoker. He's a pipe smoker, yeah. I think I read a quote of him saying that every time he wakes up, he thinks, hurrah, like another 12 <laughs> hours of nonstop pipe smoking. I don't know if that's apocryphal. Yeah, I don't know that quote, but I, I, I wouldn't discount it. So, <laughs> Yeah. Born in South Africa, wasn't he? Born in South Africa, yeah. In January 3rd, 1892, happily the, uh, the octave of the Feast of St. John, which is his Christian name, right? Mm. So John Tolkien, born of the octave of St. John. Uh, born to a non-Catholic family, right? Hmm. Leaves South Africa when he's three years old with his mother because they've decided the family's going to relocate to England. And this is probably the tragedy <clears throat> story that a lot of people know, right? His father, Arthur, stays behind to put affairs in order in South Africa. And the expectation is always that he's going to join them. Hmm. So John, John Ronald, and his brother, Hillary, his mother. His they, brother, Hillary? Brother right Hillary, right yeah. Right for a dude, all right. Hillary of Poitiers, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or just an English Hillary, yeah. yeah. So John, Hillary, Mabel, they go back to England in 1895. The expectation is that his father's going to join them soon. But his father takes ill that fall and then dies in early 1896. So he never knows his real father. You know, he's got one vague, hazy memory of his father in the back of his mind, but that's all he had, right? So born in South Africa, relocates to England in 1896, which is or 1895, which is the family homeland anyway, right? And then it's sort of consolation, tragedy, consolation, tragedy, 
for the next 15 years. Okay. There's a lot of stories I hear about how he wrote The Lord of the Rings, where he got the idea from, mm -hmm. whether it's an allegory of some sort. Yeah. All right. So if we're going to start talking the idea for the whole thing, sure. um, we got to start way, 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 way back, right? The whole mythology is born in 1913, 1914. All right. And this is going to show you how Tolkien's mind is weird and how his mind works. He's an undergraduate at Oxford. He's studying Old English. Mm. And he comes across this poem, which today most people call the Advent Lyrics. Some people call it Christ One. It's written by a poet of the 800s whose name is Kunewolf. All right. This is more than you need to know. But no, keep going. Here we go. All right. So he's reading along in this poem and he yeah. comes across these lines that just grab him. Um, it goes, Alla erendil engle beorktast over midden yard monum sended. And it rolls on like this. This is a translation of the O Day Spring lyric, O Orients from the O Antiphons. Okay. So the old English poets liked to meditate poetically on liturgical texts. They do this all the time. So Tolkien's reading this and he knows what he's reading. He knows this is one of the O Antiphons from Advent. But then he just fixates on that word, erendil. Like, mm. what does this mean? It doesn't. What, is the, what does the word translate as again? So Arendel? Arendel. Well, this is the problem, right? Tolkien is trying to figure out what does it mean. In context, it's clear it means something like O Dayspring, right? Because you're translating the Dayspring lyric, O Dawn, O Morning Star. It means something like that. But the etymology is really fiddly with it. So he doesn't know quite what it means or how this word came to be in Old English. Mm. So he starts obsessing over this word. What does it mean to say O Arendel, brightest of angels, sent over Middle Earth unto men, right? That's what the poem what? says. Wow. So he starts obsessing over these yeah. words, right? And then uh, as he starts to obsess about it, he invents his own fake etymology for Arendel and his own languages, right? He also devotes poems to this Arendel character, this strange character, this sailor, he's clearly a sailor, Tolkien thinks, right, who sails the seas and sails the skies and all the rest. And then from this mythological character, the whole mythology springs. Later, he's going to call those words the rapturous words from which sprang my entire mythology. Now, we're a long, long way from Lord of the Rings just yet. We're, we've just gotten one character, right? Yeah. So during World War One, he starts to fiddle more with these stories of elves and orcs and goblins and things like this. So they start to take, uh, sort of really take root in World War One. We don't get to the Lord of the Rings thing, though, until he writes The Hobbit. The Hobbit comes in the mid-1930s, and his publishers ask him for a sequel to The Hobbit, right? And then this whole thing just gets swept up into this <clears throat> body of mythology that's wow. already 25 years old Baking at this in point. his mind. Baking yeah. in his mind, right? <laughs> so that's where it all comes from. So it all wow. springs from this sort of like Catholic imaginative root, right? Wow. That's where it comes from. Now, on the allegory question, this is a really oh, fun I, one too. Okay, yeah. keep going. I have so many questions, but I want you to keep going. All right, so- And, and feel, free to, feel free to take as long as you want, because I am fascinated and people out there want, they are here for this. So all right. you're not boring us at all. This is wonderful. So the key quote about the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings comes in a letter that Tolkien wrote to his Jesuit friend, Rob Murray in 1954. Backstory is this. Tolkien had sent a partial draft of Lord of the Rings to Murray. Murray writes back and says, oh, this is fantastic. This is great. Um, I especially like the Catholic elements in it. He draws attention to uh, Galadriel and says, she seems to be sort of like a Virgin Mary figure, right? And there's this sort of fundamental compatibility with, with Catholicism. And Tolkien responds, he says, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, fundamentally a religious and Catholic work, right? 
And he means like in its foundations, right? It's built upon this Catholic imagination and it sort of grows out of that. But then he goes on to say, this is why I have not put in or I've cut out most re references to religion in the story. And I've absorbed the, uh, the religious element into the story itself and into the symbolism of the story, right? So what's this mean? Tolkien is really clear in other letters that he hates allegory. He hates allegory all the time in all its manifestations. He puts this in the second prologue or the prologue to the second edition of Lord of the Rings. But then sometimes after he slams that door shut, he'll open it just a crack to say, <laughs> but well, maybe there's a little allegory here, or maybe you can detect some resonances there and things like that. So that's uh that's the nutshell version of the controversy. What is a Catholic imagination and how does that differ from a Protestant imagination? That's a fantastic question. Um, so I think a Catholic imagination, I think the roots of what a Catholic imagination actually are, or actually is, it's going to be a liturgically formed imagination. I think that's the fundamental thing, right? If you think about what makes somebody Catholic, you're Catholic not because of the books you read, right? You're Catholic not because of the conversations you have, although those can be outgrowths of your Catholicism. You're Catholic because you participate in the sacramental life of the church. And this is one of the things that Tolkien did with great regularity through his life, right? When his mother dies, he and his brother become what he calls junior inmates of the Birmingham Oratory. They're serving mass mm. for Cardinal Newman's successors every morning. Wow, at the right? Birmingham Oratory? At the Birmingham Oratory. I, I used to study at uh, Merivale. Really? That, uh, that um, John Henry Newman yeah. founded. And I've been to the oratory. I didn't know that he... Yeah, yeah. You, you can go to the oratory and you can still see his mother's trunk there the, the luggage trunk that she packed all of her possessions in wow. when they sent her off when she went off to england um with with the boys there are many more stories about his mother who he thinks is a martyr and he's probably right mm -hmm. um but so daily mass right in this deeply liturgical imagination he's always quoting things from the from the mass he's quoting things from the from liturgical prayer all the time in the letters he's got the canon of the mass memorized in latin and recites it anytime he's forced to miss mass i mean he mm. loves the liturgy so much right and if you think about how the church teaches us right the liturgy is the prime organ of the magisterium of the ordinary magisterium it's how we're taught to pray it's how we're taught to believe right and so i think an imagination that's nourished in that is what's ultimately going to give you a Catholic imagination. Obviously, there's going to be symbolic content in that, right? You're going to have a deep ability to see, let's say, significance in events. You can see significance in natural phenomena because the liturgy pulls all this into it, right? You're going to have a sense of sort of the sacred that secular people won't have, a sacredness of creation that sometimes not all Protestants will have. I think that comes through with the liturgical imagination as well. So I think that's the thing mm. that mostly would differentiate a yeah. Catholic imagination from a, from a Protestant one. Now, this might be an unfair question because you're not Orthodox or an Orthodox scholar, but how do you think the Lord of the Rings would have looked different if he had been raised Eastern Orthodox? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I'm not an Orthodox, as, as you know, not Orthodox, not Orthodox scholar. I honestly don't know. I, I, I in ignorance, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and Good not not try yeah. to answer that. Um, anything I would say would be unfairly stereotyping okay. the, the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, maybe there'd be more Cesaro papism in it. If you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry to everybody. I really am. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so it said, you said he began inventing this language well before he mm -hmm. started drafting the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So what, what did that look like? 
So he'd always had a fascination with languages, right? And he's, I think, in his teens when he starts working with invented languages, right? And then this continues. This continues through um, through Oxford. This continues into you know the trenches and the huts of World War One when mm-hmm. he's there and sort of that hell on earth, right? He's continuing to invent languages, and then of course he's got this mythological element too, where well, here are the stories, here are my languages, and they sort of fuse together, right? And this is one of the things that contributes to the feeling of depth in Tolkien that you can't find That's anywhere right. else, right? So he's yes. not just inventing, like, modern fantasy authors, right? They have to give their characters, like, I've got to give them a fantasy name, so they take some medieval name and make it sound yeah. stupid, and then, aha, here's my here's my fantasy, he's, he's Roderick or something like this, right? Tolkien isn't just pulling together a grab bag. There's like a linguistic consistency in everything he does, which makes it feel like a real world, which makes it feel like a real place that you can enter into, right? right. Which is one of the things that he says a fantasy author has to do if you do your job well. The imagination of the reader is going to enter into this sub-created world that has a complete internal consistency of its own, right? So the linguistic element is huge and it's something that he continues to tinker with, right? Inventing not one, but many imaginary languages for elves of this sort and elves of that sort and men and men of this different sort and dwarves and all the rest. So and how do you invent a language? Like, how, do you sit down and write a dictionary? How, do you, how does uh, that work? You know, so there, there I will confess near total ignorance. I've sure. never seriously attempted to invent a language, yeah. but it's not just a dictionary, right? It's the structure of the language. Yeah. It's, it's how it feels, right? Yeah. Um, Tolkien was a professional philologist, right? He studied, he was one of those guys who knows Greek and Latin, you know, in childhood, who teaches himself Gothic for fun, right? (laughs) Goes off to university, becomes a master of every Germanic language and several others besides, right? So he's, he's been inside language structure, right? Because if you or I were to try to sit down and invent a language, it would look really, really hokey, right? We would borrow a grammatical element from English here, and then we'd like shoehorn in something from Latin. But he wants his languages to have complete consistency in everything. So, you know, some are vaguely Finnish influenced. Some should have the feel of Welsh, right? Because he can do that, right? Uh, He's been fascinated with this literally from his sort of early childhood days in the English countryside. So he's got that ability and it's something that, to be honest, I can't comprehend. I've studied language, but only from the outside and only superficially, Tolkien's been inside it. Um, what's his most completed invented language? Something Like some form of Elvish? I, I think, and I'm going to say this, and this is the terrifying thing about giving a Tolkien interview. There are going to be people out there, you know, so th- you know what, deeper could, levels uh, of geekdom out I, there. I got to pause and just say, well, that's true. I mean, what I find is when academics come on the show, they're much more quick to say, I don't know, which is a good thing than <laughs> yeah. people like without a degree. People without degrees, like I'm not going to master's, but yeah. I know nothing. No. I know I know everything because I, <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah. But, but people like yourself are always reticent and because of the academic community, but mm. you've also got the, the Tolkien community that I'm sure are far more brutal. <laughs> uh, that, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. So, so really, I'm sort of burying my soul before uh, you here today, yeah. right? Yeah. No, it's good. Well, okay. Well, let, let, let's, whatever his most completed language is, are there people who know it? There are people who know it and there are people who can study it. So from the 60s, you have fellowships of people who study his invented languages. Um, and there are some people who are very, very accomplished in... I think it's particularly um, 
Quenya, which is one of the elvish forms of language. This is the one where he, you know, translated, translated, I think, parts of the Litany of Loretto, the Magnificat. He translated mm-hmm. all these prayers into Elvish too. So I think that's probably the one that he got mm-hmm. most uh, most complete. Although I, again, I, I speak this yeah. waiting to be corrected in the comment section. Yeah, funny because, um, you know, Latin they say is a dead language, but Elvish or whatever the language is he's come up with was invented in his brain and then presumably is dead except for a few. So I, I, I wonder how, what language how it develops organically. It can't, I suppose. It, it can't, but but it's something that Tolkien gives life to, right? And again, th- th- this is a 50-year process for him. So he's thinking oh through how you know these elements will work together. He's tinkering with it. Even after he stopped all of his creative work, he'll continue to tinker with this or that yeah. element of his languages because he wants them to just have this organic consistency. He wants them to be real. And on a certain plane of reality, right in this in this mental sphere that he's invented, they are real. So he's always half an inventor and half a discoverer, right? Mm. As he's thinking through how these things necessarily work, because there's such a structure to the reality of his mind, he can say, "Oh yes, it's not that I've just come up with this, right? I've been thinking about it, and I've discovered that this is the way it has to work." Mm-hmm. So you said a moment ago, and it's so true that uh, when you read. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, you are kind of sucked into a world much larger than your own. It feels like when you begin reading the Lord of the Rings that you're like, wait, did I miss like several books? Yeah. You're just thrown into it. And it feels like all these sort of peripheral things are mentioned without even detailing what they mean. And yeah. that adds to the... And, and yeah, they're thrown out there just as though an intelligent person would know. Well, of course, you know this story because it's part of your cultural inheritance, right? Yeah. So it adds to your sense of sort of being a traveler in a strange world where it's yeah, like, well, wait a minute, right. I don't know anything about, you know, the gods of old or Orme at the battle. Like that's just thrown out there in the Battle of the Pelennor feels like, what on earth is he talking about, right? I don't know any of this, but everyone else apparently does. Mm. So it adds to the sense of reality. It also adds to the sort of tourist sense you get, right? So it's like you're walking around in a foreign country, you've never visited it before, and everybody assumes that, well, of course you know where this place is or that place is, right? You don't know, but it increases the wonder. Uh, Elves, orcs, did these things exist prior to Tolkien, and and where did he draw them from if they did? So they exist, but not in the form that he gives them, right? So elves are always really, really ambiguous in sort of the Western imagination, right? Uh, They're often bad, right? Elves are sort of malicious. And you can think of sort of Irish fairy tales where you talk about the good people because they're actually quite dangerous, right? Mm. Um, In Old Norse, elves are really ambiguous. Old English, elves are actually listed as descendants of Cain, so these quasi-cursed figures, right? So elves have a history. Tolkien is trying to reach back to one segment of that, right? One segment of that long thousand year, 1500 year history in the Western world and recapture it. So that's what he's doing with his invention of the elves. Orcs are different still, right? So obviously there are a thousand antecedents in medieval literature. Um, Orc is another word for demon, more or less in Mm. old English, right? But you've always got your ogres, your sort of your bogeyman, right? Um, George MacDonald is the most immediate predecessor with the Curdy books where he's got all these goblins. And the goblins of George MacDonald are a direct inspiration in some way for the goblins of The Hobbit, even though Tolkien doesn't really like MacDonald. So you get that. But then mm. 
again, he takes the inspiration, he refines it, he develops it, gives it, gives it its own consistency. And then what you have in the end are Tolkien's elves and Tolkien's orcs, which are almost completely unlike anything you'd find in the tradition before that. Am I right in thinking that what are goblins in The Hobbit are orcs in The Lord of the Rings? Did he change the name at some point? He does change the name, right? Orc just sounds better yeah. than goblin. Yeah. Go goblin ha carries with it too much weight from like fairy tales yeah. and, you know, feels childish. fairy tales and childishness, right? <clears throat> so he'll still occasionally use goblin in The Lord of the Rings and goblin elsewhere. He'll occasionally use orc in The Hobbit, but usually, usually you've got that switch. And I think it's just sort of an elevation of the seriousness of the work and the uh, sort of the reading level of the work too, I think. Tell us about the Silmarillion, what it is, where it came from in the chronology of his other writings, so, whether you like it. <clears throat> I, I love the Silmarillion. I think the Silmarillion is one of the most important things for people who like Tolkien to read. It's, it reads differently than Lord of the Rings. It's more mythological. It's less story-driven. It could be, if he had chosen to develop it this way, it could be 15 or 20 books. But instead, it's this large sweep of mythology. It was never completed in Tolkien's life. Um, he'd been tinkering with it again since World War One. He'd been tinkering with elements of it. In the mid-1960s, an American professor, Clyde Kilby, comes over to try to help him get his Silmarillion notes in order. But Tolkien's in his mid-70s at this point, so his energies and his time are waning. It's only after he dies that his son Christopher pulls everything together. So the Silmarillion is part what Tolkien had finished and part what Christopher um, sort of chooses, selects, and edits. It's mostly John Ronald Tolkien, but it's also a chunk of Christopher. It's a collection of works, right? It gives you his creation myth, which is his sort of poetical reimagining of the book of Genesis, the fall of the angels, the creation of the elves, the creation of men, and then this long history of warfare between light and dark, mm. which leads you through the first age, final catastrophe of the first age, which brings in that Eärendil character I was talking about earlier. Then you get the second age with Numenor and the forging of the rings of power. You've got a little chunk on that. And then finally, it brings you to the, the end of the third age with just a little snippet of Lord of the Rings. It's sprawling, it's aggressive, and it's really, really good. Um, any place people can go to learn more about you? Have you written on this topic? Uh... So I've got a few articles out on Tolkien. Um, so if you want me being cranky online, there are yeah. a few articles in Crisis Magazine or Catholic World Report, I think, talking about Tolkien and uh, applicability of Tolkien to the present day, reviewing the films or the, the, the uh, Amazon Prime series. You can find things like that. Uh, I've got a few egghead articles on Tolkien that exist. One is out in uh, Myth Lore. Another one's coming out in... Um, Another one's coming out in Tolkien Studies. So there are a few sort of academic articles, but those are, that's really where I've written. Um, I should plug that there's an Emmaus Academy course that will be coming out uh, that I did on Tolkien's Ooh. liturgical imagination. Little so, did you know that that was the advert we played in the mid-roll. Oh, really? So go to stpaulacademy.com slash Matt 
St. Paul Center. Wait, Saint hold on, Paul. my microphone. <laughs> now you need to check. I'm pretty Saint sure the link Paul is in the description below. Um, if you want to learn to love scripture and not just scripture, apparently Tolkien, go get a free two-week course by signing up by clicking that link below. You have access to all the amazing courses that are put there by Dr. Bergsman, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Reinhardson. Um, and I think you'll really like it. And again, you can try the whole thing for two weeks. If you don't like it, you can quit. You won't be charged a cent. I've signed up to it and i really think it's really well done but that's good to know when will that be out i don't know when the release date is i think i assume sort of later this fall or over the winter i think that's the plan Terrific. um and, and what that's if, what we've got right now yeah and what about the talking course is that worth plugging or is that more of an in-house franciscan thing oh the talking conference sorry yeah so yes uh is there we a would website or so it's franciscan.edu slash tolkien dash conference franciscan.edu thanks uh, Tolkien conference. So registration is, is going on now. I would encourage people if you want to come and want to register, students are coming back this weekend. And Franciscan students, if any of you are watching, you get free registration and that's going hey. to be going out to you. So when the students are back, registrations are going to start going pretty quickly. It so will fly. if you're from out of town and wanting to register, I would encourage you to register sooner rather than later. September 22nd and 23rd, it's going to be a great weekend. Getting insights from Father Carlos Martins and Father Gabriel Amorth and Roman's Exorcist. Find out more about that book as you hear the entire podcast. You can do so. Catholic feedback available at Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash radio. I'm Ace McKay, and when Catholics Coast to Coast returns, we're going to jump into Pints with Aquinas as Dr. Ben Reinhardt joins the conversation and actually helps us to understand more of the writings of Tolkien and what they believe to be the best of the Lord of the Rings series as it makes a connection to the Catholic faith. So we'll do that next here on Catholics Coast to Coast. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Hey everybody, welcome to Catholic Feedback. On this podcast, we connect the eternal truths of the Catholic faith to everyday life. Today, we are going to be talking with a man who needs no introduction really, but someone that that has kind of come on my radar in the last year in a pretty powerful way. His name is Father Carlos Martins, and he's the host of the hit podcast, The Exorcist Files, which if you haven't listened to season one, I'm telling you right now, it will blow your mind. It's such a gripping, incredible podcast that teaches us about the spiritual realm. And if you're new to Catholicism, one of the things that you might not know is how much the Catholic Church takes seriously the spiritual realm. Oftentimes we can think that that's just something that Pentecostals do or are fundamentalists or whatever, but I'm telling you, the Catholic Church is on the front lines of the spiritual war for good and evil and has been ever since the days of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church fights the war with their, their chief warriors who are the exorcists, and Father Carlos Martins is an exorcist himself, and he's he's helping Tan Books promote this book called about Father Gabriel Amorth called Rome's Exorcist. Father Amorth was the exorcist in Rome for many, many years. And Father Carlos Martins is here 
to talk to us about this book and Father and Father Amorth and just about exorcism in general and what we need to know as people who live in this world where the devil is trying to attack us daily, trying to destroy us, to take away our faith, and what can we do about it? So, Father Carlos Martins, welcome to Catholic Feedback. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Keith. Well, I have just loved um, getting to know more about you through your podcast and um, realizing just the power that exists all around us. And, you know, we we live our lives in this world. Sometimes we can just have the wool pulled over our eyes where we think that it's all about the here and now or it's all about eternity. But really, in our faith, we recognize that those worlds often cross paths. And there really aren't two worlds. There's just one. There's the spiritual and the and the the temporal. But the the fact is, those realities don't have a hard line in the sand. We 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 see things spiritually impacting our our temporal world all the time. Of course, I'm talking about spiritual warfare with with angels and demons. And of course, you're on the front lines of that. And your podcast, The Exorcist Files, has been incredible to listen to. So thank you for making that. And I, I was going to say this question for the end, but I'm just going to ask it right now. Is there going to be a season two? Oh, absolutely. There will be a season two. Uh, we're working on it right now. I'm uh, completing the scripts. Uh, in fact, I, I just flew in from meeting with my team in California yesterday. And um, uh, so we, we the, season two is going to be much more interesting than even season one because of some uh, additions that are going to be in. And that that's all I can say about it right now. Well, I don't want you to spill the beans, but I tell you, when you're ready to talk more about that, I want you to come back on and share with us some of that, I, some of those ideas, because I'm telling you, it was incredible to listen to. So I'm sure everyone that's watching this will go and, and check that out. But let's talk a little bit about this man, Father Gabriel Amorth. But the first time I ever saw him was on, I think it was like a Netflix special or something. It was just a movie where it was like a documentary of him performing some exorcisms there in Rome. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And one of the things I remember about him was when he began his exorcisms, he went like this to the devil. <laughs> and <laughs> is that is that reality or was that like something that the movie makers like added into that? Um, you know, he had a he, he's a very serious person with a profound sense of humor. Uh, Father Amorth was I mean, I, I don't know that he would do that in life uh, against the devil. However, an exorcist may antagonize the devil, belittle him um, in this sense. Why would he do that? Well, because essentially the, the, the spine of, of, of the devil, this, the spine of a demon, is his pride. Uh, and so he, he has to make himself big through illusion because at the end of the day, he's nothing. I mean, he's he's an entity with no future. Uh, his rebellion against God was an eternal choice. Uh, his nature, the nature of an angel, prevents repentance of a decision. Not because uh, it's it's too it's too not not because uh, God is cruel and wouldn't accept their repentance. But angels choose differently than we choose than humans choose. Uh, we can come to a point where we think better of a decision that we've made. And we think, you know, good gosh, I've made a mistake. I regret having done that. And then we, we, we turn, 
right? We, there, there's a metanoia within ourselves, a, a turning of the mind. The minds of angels are such that when they make a choice, they're making it not as a human, not from a limited point of view like we have. They're making a decision from an eternal point of view. So that, that they're, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. They're much more closer. They're, they're, they're more close to God in their power than they are to us. So it's they, they, their choice it has eternal ramifications. They're incapable of repenting from their choice. Right? So that being said, they have no future. And an exorcist may establish immediately in an encounter, if he chooses, if he thinks, if he deems it necessary, a belittling of the demon that he's got in front of him. And that's going to go directly against the image that that demon is trying to build and establish. Wow. I, you know, I never thought of it like that, but that's, you know, the pride is what led to their fall in the first place. Right. So when, when they're reminded of their true place in this economy, um, oh, it just has to, it just has to destroy them. And I, I yeah. can imagine that, that, I mean, I know from listening to you, the anger that you encounter and the, the just vile hatred that the enemy has for us. And that's, a, I think, a powerful thing for people to think about because a lot of people don't take that seriously. They think, well, I can dabble in the occult or in different things that might, you know, the church frowns upon, like, let's say, astrology or yoga or whatever, different things that deal with those spiritual realities. But how serious is this? What we don't always recognize is it's all part of a plan to destroy us. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I, I find it helpful to think of, uh, a demon, uh, think of think of a drug addict, uh, somebody who is not in control of himself, but who retains a whole lot uh, of of his natural powers. Uh, they may a drug addict may surprise you how quickly he's able to leap over a fence and come at you. Uh, I mean, where in in such a manner that even if he didn't have any drugs in his, he may not be able to do it. But the drugs provide a kind of added uh, dimension to that. Uh, at the same time, an addict is uh, cares about nothing but the substance of his addiction. Right? And so, in the demons, the, the the pride is there is 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 the addictive element. Uh, it's what they kind of quote unquote begin their day with, and it's what they end their day with. And so, that pride is is and flexing it, living out of it. Uh, impressing it upon you and, and trying to control you with it, uh, th that is the motive of their acting. That, that's, that's how they, they, they kind of get their thrills, if you will. Uh, so you come against that pride and you show that you have no fear of it, that you show that, look, look you, I, I know, I know that you've already lost. You, you've lost to Jesus Christ, uh, though you are already the loser in the great, in the great war. Not every battle is yet fought, but the war is is done and over. We know the winner of it. Uh, so you come in with that attitude and you've now eliminated nine tenths of what is under the belt, so to speak, of, of a demon. Wow, that's that's incredible. Well, speaking of Father Morth, he didn't become an exorcist until he was like 60 years old. I was surprised to learn that. Tell us a little bit about him and his and how that worked out for him and how he became an exorcist in the first place. 
Yeah. So, you know, Father Amorth was a man of many talents, in particular communication, a great serious man of the church with um, a, a, a propensity for building relationships. And in that capacity, he was able to form some astounding connections uh, with between the church and secular authorities. But even within the church, uh, he was able to forge some very powerful relationships. And 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 for the good of the church, for the good of God and, and the pr promulgation of the kingdom. Now, now he had already started this when he worked in the political realm prior to joining the seminary. And and if he had chosen to, he could have had a very promising career in Italian politics. But from the time that he was a child, he felt the pull to join the priesthood. And, and so he did. And it was only after already a very rich career uh, when he had joined the, the the Pauline religious community that founded by Father Alberioni, who is now a canonized saint, and 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 the charism of that community is to disseminate the gospel, to promote the gospel through the medium, uh, through through uh, electronic and otherwise classical media, television, uh, printed media, and and of course now digital media, and he had. Uh, an astounding ability to be able to do that. Uh, he gave countless interviews. He functioned as a teacher in addition to this, but a great communicator of the gospel. And at 60 years old, he meets uh, Cardinal Clement Mikara, uh, the, the I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Cardinal Ugo Paletti, uh, who was Vicar General for the Archdiocese of Rome. And uh, a remarkable thing about Cardinal Paletti is, uh, although he's vicar general of the pope for the for the diocese of rome and, and so in other words this is the man this is the bishop that actually runs the diocese of course the pope is the bishop of rome and the pope has supreme authority but the pope is the universal shepherd of the church and he's got a lot of things on his plate he's got a lot of meetings daily he's, he meets with world leaders he uh, so the administration of the diocese he delegates to a cardinal uh, and so cardinal paletti something remarkable about him and and i i'm i'm re i am really familiar with his work because one of my specialty is is uh, restoring and 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 um, uh, repairing relics for the church and in the time of cardinal paletti uh, during his tenure as vicar general for the diocese of rome he issued a great many uh, so i'm i'm well familiar with his work and uh, something i didn't know that i learned in this biography is that he had a real soft spot for priests and he knew, Cardinal Paletti knew, that a priest may need to see you at a moment's notice. Uh, the, the Diocese of Rome is a big place. And so he always had his door open, so to speak, for any priest to be able to just drop in without an appointment. And he would receive any priest without an appointment. Now, now that's that's pretty brave, uh, but he knew that for pastoral reasons, uh, that this is a good approach. Uh, a priest may have an, a very urgent matter that he couldn't go, uh, he didn't have time to go through the his secretary and go through the normal scheduling system. Uh, a priest may just need to blow some steam, right? He just might, might need to have a one-on-one -on -one with the man in charge. Uh, just to discuss some things, frankly. And so anyway, he made himself uh, uh, open for that. And it was during one of these sessions, one of these times that Father Amorth shows up and just drops in on the Cardinal 
And the Cardinal says to him, well, hey, are you familiar with Father Candido Amantini? Uh, Father Candido was, of course, the, the chief exorcist for the Diocese of Rome at the time. This is the man who would go on to become uh, Father Amort's teacher. And he said, yeah, I'm familiar with him. In fact, his office is right across the street at the Church of the Holy Steps, the Scala Santa. Uh, so the, the Scala Santa, as a footnote, uh, that gets its name. It's called the Church of the Holy Stairs because the stairs that would go up to Pontius Pilate's praetorium, his palace, uh, those stairs were removed by Helen, by St. Helen, the mother of Constantine, brought to Rome, and Constantine, upon receiving them, erected them. In other words, that church that is there, Constantine built around those stairs that were delivered by his mother. Why? Because our Lord was condemned inside the praetorium, and that means he had to walk up and down those stairs. So Father Candido would do his exorcisms beneath those stairs. So as pilgrims are, go up them every day on their knees, which, which they do, uh, little do they know uh, that during the time of Father Candido, he, he is now deceased, but th that's where he would be doing his exorcisms. In this, in this encounter, um, Father Amworth is, is asked, hey, do you know who he is? I Sure. And so uh, Cardinal Poletti takes a moment, takes out a, a letter, a piece of letterhead from his desk, and writes out a letter and appointment and appoints Father Amorth as uh, the exorcist for the Diocese of Rome upon the retirement of, of Father Candido. And so that's how it all began. Wow. I, I've been to those steps. I went, I went there, to, I went to Rome years ago, before, way before I was Catholic. And I remember, I remember seeing those stairs. They have like wood over them, but then there's these like right. windows you can look in and see this. And isn't there blood on those that you can see through there? Or is that something I'm not remembering correctly? I think, I think um, that, that that's a little bit of a legend. Um, it's, it's not true. Okay. Um, I think <coughs> someone said that there was, but maybe there wasn't. The blood, the blood wouldn't survive the centuries, right? I mean, yes, the blood of the Lord is miraculous, but it's miraculous for its life-giving properties, not for its staying power on marble. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, you can go there and, and there are, there are slit that, that wood, by the way, has been replaced. It was replaced a couple of years ago. So it's been reclad. Um, but you can't, there, there are slits in it where you can reach down and touch the actual stairs. Wow. That's amazing. So father Remorth becomes an exorcist at the age of 60. How does he go from, from being a new exorcist to all of a sudden being like the the chief of all exorcists because that's what he seems like to me when I when I read this book it's like this is the guy I mean he formed a community of exorcists associations and and sure. and people look to him as as the guy yeah so so father Emworth was was amazing in in the amount of energy that he had and that energy was an energy that he directed to build up the, the kingdom of God. And he knew that the church needs exorcists. Uh, it was never his own idea to become one, but he was asked to do so. And he thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm, the church has asked me and uh, I, I am not going to turn down this, this appointment. And so he approached that ministry much like he approached any ministry for the church. I, I'm going to do the best job I can, and I'm going to improve this and try to build up the kingdom of God 
through this task that I've been apportioned uh, while working in God's vineyard. And, and so he was very prolific in terms of, 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 of just helping victims in, uh, in conducting exorcisms, which he did every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He never took a day off. All right. So that so so well into his 90s, he was still doing exorcisms. Uh, at the same time, he saw the need to build up the community of exorcists uh, and to have a ministry that exorcist, where, where exorcists can minister to one another, share information, um, connect with one another on a personal level. And so he formed the International Association of Exorcists, a kind of um, um, association where an exorcist can choose to belong to, attend, you know, meetings are offered regularly, and uh, there, there's a, a kind of network whereby they can communicate with one another. When you when you talked about the fact, or when I read in the book, and then you said something too about he never took a day off. You know, I mean that's that just shows that this is such a need that the world has. It's it's yeah. not as if exorcists are sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for the phone to ring. I mean, right. there's such an incredible need. I mean, yourself, how long have you been an exorcist now, Father Martin? Gosh, I have been an exorcist since. Um, well, really since 2009, but I had started in, as a deacon in 2008. So it was during the same year that I was first ordained, uh, I was kind of thrown into the ministry. And, and again, kind of by accident in the sense that there was just a need. Uh, I was stationed at a church that had both diocesan exorcists stationed there. Uh, so under their guidelines and supervision, I started in this ministry. And, and have you seen an increase in the need for exorcists since you've been doing this? Absolutely. And, and that need is, is um, due to the paganization of Western culture. And right? so, so with the abandonment of Christendom and, and Christianity as being the, 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 the worldview of Western society. So, uh, you know, the, you think about 70 years ago, uh, American society, Canadian society, Mexican society, it's that French society. We were Christian. That's what we were, right? That was the dominant worldview. It affected our laws. It affected our public morality. It, it affected every aspect of life. Well, that worldview has been eclipsed. And so with a secular uh, slash pagan worldview, now what we have is demons don't have those the, the, the fences have been torn down uh, and people are now dabbling because they lack a moral compass. They lack a worldview to give them a, a kind of protection as to how to deal with the occult realm and how to deal with, uh, with, with evil in general. And uh, most people don't even believe that, that, there's, that, that the devil exists. And so, you know, what's wrong with contacting a fortune teller just for kicks? What's wrong with going and getting a Reiki session at my at my local spa? What's wrong with joining the Freemasons? What's wrong with um, using a Ouija board or, or 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 dabbling in some other occult act? Right. Well, what you're doing is is you are giving permission for the demons to latch on to you. Now, most people that you encounter, if, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, they don't start off by saying. Today, I would like to become possessed by a demon. What, what are the steps? This, th these are things that happen 
with without people's full awareness, I don't want to say without their consent, because I think that there has to be an element at some point of consent. But what what do you see as the most some of the most common ways that people allow demonic influence into their lives? Yeah. So the most common it come down to two. One I've already mentioned is is an act of the occult. Uh, so so dabbling with the Ouija board, tarot cards, astrology, uh, or so forth. And why is that? Uh, because it is a direct violation of the first commandment, uh, which in the first commandment, we are denying the right of God to be God. And, and in, in so doing, there's an implicit declaration, I am God. I am going to bypass the limits that he imp has imposed on me in reality. So the limits whereby, you know, my knowledge is curtailed of hidden events. Well, I'm going to go get that knowledge uh, where my power has been limited in that I, 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 I'm unable to physically attack somebody without consequence. So I'm going to spiritually attack them by way of a curse. So in doing this kind of thing and violating the first commandment, we are replicating the rebellion of Satan and his fallen angels. Right? That is an act of, div of, of divine rebellion, right? a rebellion against God and his law. So that makes you that that repetition of the sin of Satan uh, makes you his personal property. You belong to the devil in the state of sin. And in that particular sin, you are configuring yourself to his heart. Well, whether you agree or agree to disagree, that is great insights from Pints with Aquinas. If you want to hear the entire podcast, check out the conversation at Podcast Central. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio. As we dive into this morning's readings from the Mass, it's time for this week's Word on the Word. Today, we're taking a look at the second reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's all about love. So Paul actually writes that we, humanity, Oh, love to one another. And that's something that we will never be perfect at. But the more that we practice charity, the easier it will become to do. Wait, what? Wh why do we owe love? Are, are we in debt? Oh, no, not in the way that you're thinking. So God created us to love him in return. He doesn't need our love, but we're called to do so. And not just by praising him, but by loving those around us too. We are commanded to love each other because God is present in every human person. And you never have to worry about running out of love to give because God will continue to fill your heart with love for you to pour out to others. Jesus is love incarnate. And in every situation, no matter how difficult or frustrating, Jesus would always choose the more loving option. He is the perfect role model to look to when trying to practice charity. That's so true. So this week, we challenge you to pray for more charity and for the strength to choose the more loving course of action. And tune in next week right here on EWTN. Bye. Toodles. Getting this week's Word on the Word, helping us to deepen our understanding of this morning's readings from the Mass. Thanks again for hanging out. It is always a pleasure to bring you all the latest of what's happening at Podcast Central. Just remember throughout the week, if you need additional insights to help you in your walk with God, just go to podcastcentral at EWTN.com slash radio, and then join me again next week as we'll do it again. I'm Ace McKay. Remember to let God define who you are, and I'll see you back again for Catholics Coast to Coast.